Well, good evening again. I want to share with you the most ironic text message that I have ever received, which is about 30 minutes ago, I had out a text message from someone who said, do you know where the wine is for communion tonight? It looks like we might be out, which is the most ironic text message. Thankfully, we, we figured it out, but didn't have to have a, a miracle tonight. We had, we had some in the storage bin. So uh, last week, if you were here, we looked at John 1 and how its unique description of Jesus was echoing the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, and how that gave us this really full but kind of mysterious picture of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And now we have the, another unique story from the Gospel of John that's only recorded in John. This is another story that's only in the Gospel of John. And when I, when I read the Gospel of John, it just seems like he's more willing than other Gospel writers to include stories that don't have an, an obvious explanation, something that's very like clear that would teach something. Um, on the surface, this story is just a story of a wedding, and Jesus doesn't teach anything, and he doesn't do anything that's overtly theological. And, and granted, he does something absolutely extraordinary by turning water into wine, but it's very layered. We don't really get the significance of it other than it being his first miracle. And that's what's kind of cool about John is he includes these stories in, in ways that the other gospel writers don't. In John 1, we heard the phrase, in the beginning was the word which for someone who's read the Old Testament I was sharing last week, it sort of conjures up images for you of creation, like when creation began. And uh, it sets Jesus right into that story, right into that moment when the empty expanse became land and sea and sky and creatures. And this week, John tosses another little phrase in there that conjures up another story when he says... On the third day, Jesus and his disciples went to this wedding. So, I don't know if you're like me, but if if you've read many biographies, you know that biographies often use literary devices to tease out the significance of the story of the person that it's talking about. Biographies would be really boring if there was no element of storytelling. No one wants to read a 300-page list of things that somebody did or saw, right? And John here is using this literary illusion to draw out some theological significance of of these actual historical events. So so what I'm saying is that he's not just making up a story. He's telling us a true story, but he's doing it in a way that's, that's creatively conjuring up these other thoughts in us. He could have just used bullet points and said, uh, Jesus born... And then uh, before Jesus, he's the son. And since that, you know, God made all the stuff with him. That, that He could just write that. And, and that would be incredibly boring. And, uh, and you would think, oh, it's, it's caveman literature. Uh, but as last week's chapter, John 1, showed us, John loves to evoke in our memory something else that we've read. So yes, you're reading the story of the wedding at Cana, but you're also remembering something else when you hear, and on the third day, right? If you read the Bible, it makes you think of the resurrection. 
And so we're supposed to be reminded that Jesus, who this story is about, did not just do this when he was alive, but he is alive. He is resurrected and living. And so we're living in the story of Jesus, just like the people who are at this wedding. When I read this passage, two things rise up to the top for me, and those are the two things I want to talk about tonight. Uh, The first is that Jesus is present among his people. And then the second is that Jesus is powerful. So let's go into this passage. Let's plumb the depths of this passage and, and just keep in mind his presence and his power, okay? So first, the presence of Jesus. In John 1, it says that Jesus dwelt amongst the people of the earth. And last week, I talked about how the word for dwelt in the Greek, uh, which is the original language that the Bible was written in, or at least the the New Testament, is also used for, for saying something like, he made camp or he pitched a tent. So there's this earthly quality of Jesus that alludes to camping that makes it so visceral, like Jesus was here His feet hit the ground. God's feet hit the ground and touched the dirt and his head was resting on this very earth. Now, if you've read the Gospels or you've been around a church, uh, you, you might know that it's well known that Jesus loved to spend time drinking wine and hanging out at parties with people. But it is so often forgotten. It is not how people talk about Jesus. And it's not how people who follow Jesus often uh, live. We know this about Jesus, that he has this quality, but we forget. And I find myself being judgy, which is not a word. Word tried to correct that. But judgy felt like the right word, so I'm going to make it up tonight. I find myself being judgy of Christians who make camp amongst those uh, who live raucous or unsavory lives. Do you know what I mean? Like when you see another Christian and you don't like the way that they're living, but if you really reflected on it, you'd be like, eh, it's probably the, pe- the people they're hanging out with are probably the people that Jesus would be hanging out with. The, for me, when I can get away from my, my judgmentalism, I love being around, around the raucous and, and maybe the unsavory. That's one of the reasons that I love to be a part of the music scene. I love being a part of uh, helping with uh, live concerts in Winston-Salem. A few times a year, I, I, I do that a lot, I, um, and, and a few times a year, some out-of-town musician, uh, it never ceases, it never fails to happen, will ask me where they can buy drugs when they meet me. And as the night goes, I decline to assist them in that. And, and as the night goes on, I love, you know, we're like moving amps and drum sets and plugging things in. And, you know, later in their night, thanks for your help, man. So what do you do, you know? And I get to say, well, you know, I work for Jesus. I'm a pastor. And I, I love that. I love being in, in those spots, in those spaces. Many of you know that I was a bartender all through seminary, uh, and that was just a great education in ministry. I would stand behind the bar at the Mellow Mushroom on 4th Street with my Greek flashcards, and my coworkers would wonder what I was studying. And it, that was just a great 
way to end up getting to talk about Jesus' love with my coworkers. So working in restaurants and, and being in the music scene, these are things that allowed me to meet some characters who know little or nothing about the love of God. Uh, and if you want to remind yourself about the love of Jesus, then I would recommend you be close to that kind of person. That those be the kind of people that you surround yourself with. People who have not heard the good news yet. That is where you will sense his love in, in just potent and, and appreciable ways. But you have to fight for this very hard. I am constantly fighting to find ways to stay in the world. The stream of church life loves to draw you deeper and deeper into itself. And pretty soon your dinners are only a bunch of Christians and your concerns are little insular things about the internal church life. It's really hard. I, I'm, I'm being not sarcastic. It might sound like it is hard to be in a dysfunctional small group. And, and it's hard uh, when your child is not able to stay in child care. These are, these are truly frustrating things. Okay, I understand that. And I, I've been there on those. Um, but those are the kind of things that make us more and more concerned with the inside of the church. Uh, and and I, I just think we would actually have a greater sense of Jesus if the things that really frustrated us were the fact that there's people out there who don't know the love of God. That, and, and I think that we would be more satisfied as people, uh, or, or, or maybe you are, but I'm saying that I, I spend my time thinking about petty things inside the walls of the church. And it distracts me from just recognizing that there's people out there hurting. The tide of the world and the enemy is actually always pushing us to concern ourselves about things like the church's music or a not ideal small group or a, a social conflict within the body. And to escape this, to liberate ourselves, we all ought to live amongst people who are not in our flock. You know, whether that's neighbors or coworkers. Something Ben and I talk about a lot is we'll meet young people who say, you know, I want to witness to people. I want to do ministry to the lost. And so I want to become a pastor. And we'll say, oh, no, no, don't, don't become a pastor then. I mean, becoming a pastor is great. I love being a pastor. I get to hang out and love on Christians. But, but you're the people out there who are meeting the lost where you work and where you live. Jesus is amongst people. He's amongst people who are, who are drinking wine and he's making wine for them. And the Bible says that he came into the world eating and drinking and the Pharisees accused him of keeping bad company and of being a drunkard and a glutton. But Jesus ate good food and he drank good drinks. I do want to pause, though, and say that it would be irresponsible of me to not acknowledge that humans have a complicated relationship with alcohol. God made wine just like he made everything else. And Psalm 104, which is a, a poetic litany of God's creativity, celebrates this when it says, You cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate. 
that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. But this psalm is actually pointing to God's perfect design, not our, not our present broken reality. So on the other side, Proverbs 22 says, don't gaze at wine because it's red, because it gleams in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it, it bites like a snake and it stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and you will say absurd things. You'll be like someone sleeping out at sea or lying down at the top of a ship's mast. That's Proverbs 23. All of us have uh, tempters, things that tempt us, okay, from which we should refrain. And, and for many people, that is alcohol. And for, for everyone, there's something. You know, for the envious and the gluttonous, it's anything that stirs our hearts to want stuff. You know, and for some, it's tobacco. And for those prone to lust, it's indulging in sexual sin. It might be gossip or indulging in the business of others. So all of us have things that, that tempt us to pull us away from the way that God designed things. The, the wrong response that sometimes we've had in Christianity is to, is to try to make those things illegal. Like to, to say that all, all alcohol is bad for all people. Instead of using wisdom to say all of us have something that breaks us that we ought not to have in our life. Uh, in the, I, I love these words from Martin Luther. He says, do you suppose that abuses are eliminated by destroying the object which is abused? Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then prohibit and abolish women? So to riff off of Luther, if, if we're materialistic, should we eliminate clothes and houses from the Christian life? Or, or if we gossip, ought we cut off all relationships? You know, Christians have approached alcohol with legalism. But in Christ, there is freedom. The thing we have to understand is that freedom does not mean that, that we're just at liberty to harm ourselves and others. And that's just how we have to approach alcohol like anything else. So for some of us, wine is just something for which we ought to refrain. And for all of us, something exists that we are best to resist. So that's my caveat about wine. Now, God does want to celebrate things that he made. And that's one of the principal meanings of this passage. When I was ordained, when I was, giving my, um, when I was going through my examinations, you have to go in front of all the pastors in the area. It's a thing called the presbytery. And I preached a sermon on fasting at that. And one of the older pastors said, definitely fast. Jesus did it. It's good. But don't forget to tell people that God's character is one who loves a feast. And that is so true when you look over the scope of Scripture. There's so much more feasting in the Bible than there are spiritual disciplines. The Bible doesn't celebrate being an ascetic or depriving ourselves of things for the sake of religion. The Bible catalogs feasts and banquets all the way through. I mean, all the way through. If you have read the Bible, there are an incredible number of parties and banquets and weddings and feasts 
So the scene in verses 9 and 10, the whole setting of this story also, it just all shows that God loves his creation. He doesn't reject it. Jesus is at a wedding. The reception of a wedding is a celebration, right? It's a celebration with the implication that there's more celebrating to come. There's all sorts of relational bonding that's happening. People come together to reunite with each other after not seeing each other for a long season. If you're old enough to have known people for a while and then gone to a wedding, you know that that's a place where you reunite with people. You know, the people who are part of the congregation celebrate the couple through toasting and they pledge support to the couple in vows. Uh, They celebrate with the couple by dancing and the couple makes a covenant with each other in words and then they even embody that later in physical intimacy. So Jesus is endorsing all of his creation, our bodies and the feasting of things He's endorsing that by being at this wedding and participating in this celebration. So lest there be any dispute about this, Jesus wants to unveil his power and his presence for the first time at a wedding, at a celebration of of this world, how God made it. And he shows his love for humanity by bringing support to a couple's marriage and gladness to the hearts of those who are celebrating. And you know how Jesus shows us that he's not concerned with our spiritual, reflect, uh, our spiritual perfection or our religious discipline? This is how Jesus shows that he's not concerned with us being perfect or with us being disciplined. Let me quote Johnny Cash. In the little Cana town, the word went all around that he turned water into wine. Not only did he turn a bunch of water into wine, what kind of water did he turn into wine? He took water that was set aside for ritual washings, and he made that into wine. That is very potent if you think about the symbolism. He took on flesh, and he brought his presence to his people. But instead of reprimanding them and dispensing frameworks and rules for how they ought to live, he took water that was set aside to ritually purify them, and he turned it into something that fills their heart with gladness. You know, people can repeat the trope, Jesus loves us, uh, but for me at least, that is always diluted in my own heart by my own sin and self-righteousness. Uh, The way that I live just makes it seem like Jesus wants me and everybody else to live a certain way. That's often how I approach my faith. Even though I may not think that or understand that the Bible's not teaching that, that, that's that's what's in my gut. You know, I'm judgy of other people, and I get annoyed with Christians who are hypocrites. So I end up forgetting that Jesus does not treat people the other way. He doesn't treat people the way that I treat people. And I don't say that to imply that I I think Jesus is telling me, you better shape up and you better treat people the way I do. What I mean is that I need a better grasp that Jesus doesn't treat me the way that I treat other Christians. I deserve to have him be judgy and frustrated with my hypocrisy. 
He should treat me the way that I treat other people. But he doesn't. He turns water into wine to bring gladness into my heart. What good news is that? So now let's talk about the power of Jesus, okay? We just talked about the presence of Jesus amongst his people, that he celebrates with them, that he wants to bring his love to where they're at. And let's talk about his power. In verses 3 and 4, we see that they ran out of, uh, they ran out of wine. And so Mary decides to tell Jesus, which I don't know if you have read this story before, but I always think that this is a very funny exchange between Jesus and Mary. If you import a certain tone in how you read the exchange, it kind of seems like Mary is like this boss mom, and Jesus is this punk kid who just refuses to listen to what she's asking him to do. Uh, that, that's how I sort of uh, read this if you, if you kind of bring like a snarky tone to it. But let's take a look at verse 3 and kind of talk about what's going on here. Mary says something to the effect of, hey, they're out of wine. Why would she turn to Jesus in this situation? It's a huge wedding feast, complete with a master of the feast, it says, and then also the father of the bride, who's the host. So we get this master of the feast, right? He, he's essentially a head waiter. So if you're a head waiter, presumably you have a crew, right? So we think this, this is probably a well-staffed event. And if you can have a staff of people waiting at your, at your wedding celebration, you're probably someone of, of a noble class, right? Mary could have told the head waiter, <clears throat> um, the keg kicked, you know, you guys, are out of, you guys are out of wine. Or she could have gone to the father of the bride and said, you know, I think your servants misjudged the crowd and it looks like we're a little low on vino, so you might want to do something about that. But she doesn't tell the head waiter and she doesn't tell the bride's father, who's the host. She tells Jesus. Why would she tell Jesus? Why would she tell her 30-year-old son from Nazareth. He is not relevant to this wine shortage. You know, is, is she expecting him to respond with, uh, you know, I've got a case of the 2012 Nicholas Fouillaté Champagne Brut Reserve in my truck. I can go get it and I'll bring it back. Is that what Mary is looking Why is Mary talking to Jesus about it? He's... He's talking to, she's talking to Jesus because she fully expects for him to do a miracle. She has absolutely no doubt that he's going to do a miracle. And she proves that later when she says to the servants, do whatever that guy says. She doesn't know what he's even going to do. She doesn't say, you know, when he gets out his super Jesus wand, be ready. He just said, she's just saying, I have no idea what he's going to do, but listen to this guy. But Jesus is hesitant, right? That's the other thing that's kind of quirky about this exchange. Why is Jesus hesitant to respond to Mary? It's because he doesn't want to be an instrument for humans to do what they want to do. He doesn't want people to think that they can get Jesus to just do the thing that they want to have happen. That's why he, he pushes back at first. He's not going to be a pawn for human ends, lest people confuse him for a magician or something else. And we see him do this a lot. If you read the gospel stories, he deflects 
a lot when people ask him to do things. He refuses to do things on the terms that people demand. He'll, he'll delay doing it or he'll do it just a little different than how they ask, even if the outcome ends up being exactly what somebody asked for. But despite his resistance, he decides that he's going to remedy the situation. And, 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 and this is just when Jesus comes onto the scene as Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, the Word made flesh, whose power and presence is going to bring the love of God to all of the world through all of time. The Word made flesh dwelt among us, God present with his people in their place, and now he's not just present with them, he's going to start unleashing his power into the world. And he commands the situation. He says, fill the jars. And they do, and they fill them to the brim, and then he instructs them to draw some of the water out. And when they draw it out, that's when we learn that this is most excellent wine. Not only does Jesus give his people his presence, and by his people I mean us, he also brings his power. He came to earth, and he took on flesh, and he did not, as I just said, come to teach people stuff. If you read the Gospel of John in one sitting, which if you have time over Christmas, make a cup of coffee and just read the Gospel of John in one sitting. And you'll just see this picture of Jesus that is wild and powerful. He didn't, uh, he didn't just come to tell people, you know, you better shape up on your social justice or, or you better be morally perfect. He didn't come to tell people that you all better have a family or you better vote a certain way. And by the way, when I say that, I mean that in any way. He didn't come to tell anybody to vote in any way. He came to love the unlovable. He came to heal the hurting and the sick. And he brought feasting and gladness to the hearts of broken humans. And he still does. John's little illusion on the third day reminds us of the resurrection. That Jesus is still bringing power, powerful gladness into our hearts. He came to Cana to turn water into wine, but he still brings that power here. The power of Jesus to make wine, what that rep- represents, is still available to us today. When you read this story, keep in the back of your mind that Jesus is still alive. He went to the cross to die a terrible death that humans might know that God loves us despite our deserving that death for the ways that we brutalize each other and the ways that we brutalize his creation. But on the third day, from death, he rose from the grave. The same person who mysteriously turned water into delicious wine is alive today. And you know what that means for us? That means that we too get to be in the powerful presence of Jesus. Just like these lucky souls who tasted that wine at that wedding. This week I started over this prayer book I love called Seeking God's Face. If you've read our emails, I've been like badgering you all to buy it. 
And uh, one of the readings this week was from Isaiah 64, where it says, we are the clay and he is the potter. We are the clay and he is the potter. And of course, I was preaching this sermon, so I had this in John 2 in the back of my mind, but I'm reading Isaiah 64. And you know what occurred to me? Do you know which character we are in the story of the wedding at Cana? We're the water. We're the water turned into wine. We can, like Mary, expect his power to transform us. The Son of God came to the world because God wants his people's hearts to be healed and transformed and even gladdened. He doesn't promise us that our bodies will work right or that our jobs will be fulfilling or that our relationships will be peaceful, but he does offer himself, his power and his presence. Humans, we humans use each other and we envy each other and we gossip about each other and we abuse the earth and we promote our own agendas And that pollutes this whole world, this wonderfully imagined and designed world, uh, and just makes it not how God designed it to be. He made it, and we wreck it with our selfishness and our pettiness. And deep down, I know not all of us believe that, but I think a lot of us do. I think a lot of us carry guilt that we're part of that. For me, at least, I know that I bear a burden of guilt for how hard and crude my heart is. And and I know that I've caused that in other people. But Jesus gave himself on the cross to pay the price for that guilt that I feel inside of myself. He died the death that I deserve, and on the third day he rose again. We know he lives because of the resurrection. The Spirit dwells in and amongst us, transforming our hearts from water to wine. The powerful and fully present Jesus transforms those who believe in him. And not only does he make us more like himself, not only does he clean us up, he wants to gladden our hearts. After all, he did not offer to clean us up with sterile water. He offers himself time and time again in the rich and gladdening drink of wine. So that's why on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he was with his friends and he gave thanks for it and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken 